Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by... Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by best-selling Christian author Jacqueline Brown. Get a free audio copy of her award-winning novel, The Light, Who Do You Become When the World Falls Away? Get the book at sqpn.com slash the light. Appropriate for mature teens and adults. Learn more at Jacqueline-Brown.com. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. You're listening to episode 167 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. In this episode, we're talking about the Son of Sam killings. In 1976, a terrifying series of crimes began in New York City. Young couples and women with long, dark hair were being shot, apparently at random. They were being shot with 44 caliber bullets, so the press dubbed their attacker the 44 caliber killer. Soon, however, the killer gave himself a new name, the Son of Sam. In August of 1977, 44 years ago this month, David Berkowitz was arrested for the crimes. The press began reporting that he'd been given his orders to kill by a 6,000-year-old spirit in a dog named Sam. Berkowitz confessed to the crimes, but doubt remains about whether he was the only person involved. What happened in the Son of Sam crimes? Who is David Berkowitz? And did he really act alone? I think that the Son of Sam crimes were horrific. I think that David Berkowitz wasn't involved and definitely committed some of them, but I also think that we need to give serious consideration to the theories we've just named. Next time, we'll be looking at the evidence for whether David Berkowitz acted alone, who Sam really was, who else may have been involved, and what connection all this has to Satanism. You're listening to episode 168 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Son of Sam killings. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In August of 1977, 44 years ago this month, David Berkowitz was arrested for the Son of Sam shootings. He confessed... But doubt remains about whether he was the only person involved. So what happened in the Son of Sam crimes? Did Berkowitz act alone? And what role may Satanism have played in all this? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So Jimmy, again, what do we need to say to begin? Today, we're dealing with a true crime mystery involving multiple murders. As always, we will be keeping the discussion clinical and will not be dwelling on gory or sensationalistic details. However, some listeners may be sensitive and parents in particular should be prudent in making decisions for their families. Next week, we'll be back to a more normal episode. All right. Before we get into the theories and faith and reason perspectives, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make the show possible, including Jonathan F., John D. and Kathy B., Alan P., Corey S., and Stephen B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. 
You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, let's review what theories are there about the Son of Sam killings. I'm not aware of anyone who thinks David Berkowitz was completely innocent regarding the attacks, but it's a possibility we should consider for the sake of logical completeness. The conventional view is that he perpetrated all of the attacks and that he acted alone, so we'll definitely consider that. But then there's another view, which is that he was involved with the attacks, but he did not act alone, that other people were involved also. And if other people were involved, what was really going on? Finally, from the faith perspective, we'll look at what to make of the claim that a spirit was ordering him to perpetrate these crimes and whether he's sincere in his conversion to Christianity. Okay, let's start with the reason perspective. What can we say about the Son of Sam killings from the reason perspective? Could David Berkowitz be innocent? After all, he confessed that he was guilty. He did confess, and while a confession is generally good evidence of a person's guilt, it's not conclusive. There are people who confess to crimes that are, in fact, innocent of them. This happens sometimes when police coerce a false confession or intimidate a person into making one, the thinking he'll be convicted of a worse crime if he doesn't confess to this lesser one. It also happens when a person has mental illness and may either believe that they committed the crime or that they need to confess for some bizarre reason. It can happen with people who are publicity or attention seekers who feel the need to insert themselves into events and make themselves the center of attention, which is kind of itself a form of mental illness if you're confessing to a crime to do that. It can happen when someone wants to be perceived as macho or intimidating, so they confess to crimes they didn't commit as a way of boasting. And it can happen when a person is innocent but confesses in order to shield someone else from being prosecuted for the crime. So just because a person confesses, that doesn't itself prove he's guilty. What about in the case of David Berkowitz? Berkowitz gave the appearance of being mentally ill at the time of his arrest, and so you could argue that he confessed because of mental illness. You know, maybe a 6,000-year-old demon dog told him he needed to confess. However, there is significant evidence connecting him to the crimes. He purchased a 44 caliber handgun that ballistics showed was used in several of the attacks, although not all of them. The fact he was the legal owner of the gun points to his involvement. There were witnesses to some of the attacks that recognized him as the gunman, which points to his involvement, and the police found notes and letters in his apartment and car that connected him to the attacks. Coupled with his confession, I would say that puts it beyond reasonable doubt that he was involved. What about the view that he was involved, but that he didn't act alone? This view has been famously explored by a journalist named Maury Terry, who wrote about it in his book, The Ultimate Evil. Recently, Netflix released a four-part documentary based on Terry called The Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness. From its name, you'd think that the documentary is principally about David Berkowitz, but it's actually not. Really, it's a primarily about Maury Terry and his fascination with the Son of Sam case. That's the descent into darkness from the title. The documentary's perspective is that although Terry may have a point about some things, he became obsessed with his theories and he, Maury Terry, descended into darkness. The documentary is thus rather open-ended about many of Terry's theories. It suggests some of them are true, but in various parts it challenges and casts a measure of doubt on them as well. And how does it do that? 
In the process of telling his story, the documentary observes correctly that Terry came to believe in an extensive criminal conspiracy that involved much more than just the Son of Sam attacks. They then quote some of his friends and associates saying that they thought some of the connections Terry drew between different things were rather tenuous and may not be accurate. And that's fair enough. I doubt hardly any crime investigators are 100% right in all of the theories they develop when looking at different pieces of evidence. For example, Manson family member Charles Tex Watson has said that Vincent Bugliosi's book Helter Skelter is about 85% accurate which is pretty good in my mind for an outsider to figure out what was going on inside a criminal conspiracy with 85% accuracy is quite good. So it doesn't bother me if some of Maury Terry's ideas about the Son of Sam attacks were iffy or inaccurate. What I'm concerned about is the core claim. Did David Berkowitz act alone or did he have associates? And what does the documentary have to say about that? It's ambiguous. It presents things that point both ways. One of the ways it challenges the idea that Terry may have been wrong about this is by playing some footage of an interview that Terry did with Berkowitz in prison in 1997. It shows Berkowitz agreeing when Terry presses him on certain matters, and then it intercuts that with footage of some of Terry's associates saying they don't find this credible. They thought that Berkowitz in this interview was just going along with whatever Terry said. He's like really reluctant and just going, yeah, yeah, okay, that happened. Yeah, that happened and stuff. But he's being led. He's not really volunteering information. This is the part of the documentary that most challenges Terry's narrative. We put this series together and we agreed to have Maury as the producer of the interview. But in the interview, what became clear to me was that Maury Terry had his own agenda. Let's talk about the people involved in the 44 shooting of Stacey Moskowitz and Robert Violante. There was a witness who saw a, a reddish or rust-colored van parked across the street from the victim's car and slightly behind it. Is that van relevant to this case? Yeah, I was part of a group. I have information which holds that there were three individuals in that van. Is that correct? It might have been three, I can't. From the very beginning, it was difficult to know what was happening in the interview. I didn't see David Berkowitz with a lot of details about what happened. Berkowitz, who was reticent to talk about things. I don't know why. He didn't want to go there. Maybe he was worried about snitching on other people in the crime. Maybe he didn't want to relive it. But Murray wanted the truth out of him. The process. You're talking about the process cult from Britain? Yes, right, right, right. You're saying then, and this is really astounding, that process leaders were among those gathered at the time when the plans were put into effect to commit the 44 caliber shootings? Yeah. He was vague about this whole thing about the process church, who the players were. You know, there's some suggestive interviewing going on. Maury was aggressive to the point where I thought he was being a bit too much like a cop, maybe freak him out. 
And I think that's fair. I think that Berkowitz clearly comes across as reluctant and that Terry was being too aggressive in this interview. And it raises the question of whether a reluctant Berkowitz was simply going along with what Terry wanted him to say. Terry thus did hurt his credibility. The documentary Elsewhere gives evidence in favor of some of Terry's theories, but he hurt himself here. The question is still whether the core of the theory is accurate, and the fact that Terry did a flawed interview on this occasion doesn't settle that question. Why would Berkowitz be as reluctant as he was in the interview? Actually, Berkowitz is explicit about why he's reluctant. Before the interview starts, Terry tells Berkowitz that the interview may go long enough that it could be used as the basis for two hours of television. And Berkowitz balks. So what is this going to be like? The same thing like inside of this? Are you going to make just one like hour-long block out of it? Or, mm, or two. Two, that's a lot. That's a lot because that's going to be, mean a lot of talking about a lot of this stuff. Well, there's a lot of cooperation out there. Yeah, see, it's, but if it's too it's too long, you lose people, you know, because people don't have the same level of interest you do. You know, if it's too long, you know, it's just not really uh, very joyous talking about this stuff. And I think that's right. It's not joyous for Berkowitz to talk about this stuff for very long. He's deeply ashamed of it, and that's part of why he was reluctant in the interview. Also, Berkowitz has elsewhere said that he won't go into too much detail or name living members of the group he was part of because he fears both for his own life and for his family. He points out that he himself was attacked in prison when another inmate tried to cut his throat, for which he still has this huge scar. And at the time of this interview, his father was still alive, and he was concerned for his father's safety if he said things that could get people in trouble with the law. So I think it's understandable that he would be reluctant. Ultimately, we have to look at the evidence beyond this particular interview. Could Berkowitz just be fabricating and saying that there were other people to absolve him of the crimes? If it was, you wouldn't expect him to be as reluctant as he was in this interview. I mean, he, you wouldn't need to pull one small detail out of him after another, which is, you know, what you see Terry doing in the full interview. You'd expect a person trying to exonerate himself to be eager to share details and show everybody he wasn't responsible for all the stuff that went on. Instead, what you find is a consistent pattern across the interviews he's given, where Berkowitz says, in essence, it doesn't really matter that other people were involved. I was involved. I really did kill people, and that justifies my lifelong imprisonment. I accept my punishment. I accept my responsibility. And even if I wasn't pulling the trigger in every case, I was a willing participant in these crimes, and I deserve what I'm getting. That doesn't sound like a person who's trying to get himself off the hook by inventing accomplices. It sounds like a person who's accepting responsibility despite having accomplices. Still, the evidence is what ultimately matters. How did you go about investigating the evidence? By considering several things. First, I wanted to know whether Terry was alone in thinking that there was a group involved or whether other people close to the case came to the same conclusion and they did. As Wikipedia summarizes, Journalist John Hockenberry asserted that many officials doubted the single-shooter theory, writing, What most don't know about the Son of Sam case is that from the beginning, not everyone bought the idea that Berkowitz acted alone. 
And that's right. Not everybody was convinced. For example, some of the eyewitnesses of the attacks were convinced that it was not Berkowitz they saw shooting on some of these occasions. Here's a brief clip of Tommy Zeno, who was a witness of attack number eight and saw the gunman. No, I didn't think it was David Berkowitz then, and I don't think it's him now. Some people initially thought it was David Berkowitz acting alone based on what the media had reported, but after they heard Terry's arguments, they became convinced he wasn't alone. For example, here's Nasa Moskowitz, the mother of Stacy Moskowitz, who died as a result of attack number eight. No way can anyone convince me that David Berkowitz shot Stacy. Why not? Because it's physically impossible. We'll get back to what she means by saying it was physically impossible. But here's another clip from someone who is convinced. This is Carl DeNaro, who was shot in attack number two. 100% I believe David Berkowitz did not shoot me. One of the other victims, John Deal from attack number four, didn't need to be convinced by Terry. He was already convinced. Christine's boyfriend, John Deal, who survived the attack, told me Berkowitz's account of that evening in his original confession was blatantly false. Deal said he had accidentally bumped into Berkowitz on the street just minutes before the shooting and that Berkowitz could not have been in position in time to fire the shots that killed Christine. Of course, you could say that despite their familiarity with the case, all of these people were not experts, but some in law enforcement thought Berkowitz did not act alone. For example, here's Craig Glassman, a volunteer deputy sheriff who lived in the same building as Berkowitz and helped participate in his arrest. Does it shock you that a law enforcement officer in North Dakota now believes that John Cobb was a member of a satanic cult and might have been a second trigger man? Not at all. Not in the least. I felt that Berkowitz didn't engineer the whole thing. Someone who was definitely an expert in weighing legal evidence was Queens District Attorney John Santucci, who said, I believe that David Berkowitz did not act alone that, uh, in fact, others did cooperate, aid, and abet him in the commission of these crimes. So you can't claim that everyone was on the same page. There were people who were familiar with the case, including legal experts like D.A. Santucci, who were convinced that Berkowitz didn't act alone. How did the New York Police Department react to that? Many officers reacted very negatively, and that's understandable. They had been through a very rough time in the 1970s, and morale was low. Then things got worse, because as the Son of Sam killings went on, people became more and more critical of the department, asking why they weren't catching the killer despite all their efforts. And then they caught Berkowitz, he confessed, and the killings stopped. They naturally celebrated, and they thought that this was over, and they wanted it to be over. They naturally would not want it held that they messed up, that they had failed to catch everybody, and that more investigation was needed, and that there were still killers on the loose. As a result, many in law enforcement in New York were quite angry with the claim, and some of them, like Officer Joe Coffey, attacked Maury Terry when he published his book, The Ultimate Evil, claiming that Berkowitz did not act alone. For example, here's a radio call-in where Coffey speaks with Terry. From New Jersey, 489 WABC. Investigative reporter, writer, Maury Terry. If you'd like to join in this most chilling conversation, 212-877-WABC. Yes, Joseph. Yes, uh, Mr. Terry, I have a question to you. Yes, I'm here. 
I was an investigator on that case. In fact, I was the detective sergeant in charge of night operations on that case. This wouldn't be Joe Coffey. Yes, it is. We know exactly where you are. You're perpetrating a fraud on the public, and you know it, and I know it. Joe, if there was a fraud perpetrated on the public, it was done by the Omega Task Force back in 1977, not by me, the Queens DA's office, or other investigators around the country who've been trying to get to the truth. The police department deals in evidence. So do I, Joe. Speculation. So do I, and so does John Santucci in Queens. Well, John Santucci is another story. Everybody has an, uh, uh, is entitled to their opinion. Oh, you mean John Santucci just has an opinion here. He's not a professional investigator, Joe. He certainly is not. I'm sure his office will be delighted to hear that you said that. Joe, uh, do you feel threatened by Maury Terry's... Uh... Not at all. Not at all. I just think the public should be made aware of what a fraud this is. Have you read the book, by the way, Joe? No, sir, I wouldn't read that trash. Well, I... It's rubbish. I, I think you ought to read it. Well, I don't like reading fiction. You can hear how hostile and defensive Coffee is in this clip. He's not using the language of a calm, deliberative person who feels in command of the evidence and arguments. He simply calls up and personally attacks Terry, telling him, we know what you are and you're perpetrating a fraud and you know it. He dismisses the book as a fraud, trash, rubbish and fiction and then admits he hasn't read it. And he seeks to minimize the fact that District Attorney Santucci agrees with Terry. Now, I don't think Terry's performance in this exchange is completely exemplary either, but you can hear how hostile and seemingly unwilling to listen to contrary evidence and arguments Coffee is. And he's not the only one. Here are a couple of clips, one older, one more recently, from Joseph Borelli, the officer to whom the first Son of Sam letter was addressed, and here's how he feels about the matter. All of a sudden, somebody writes a book about satanic cults and stories start changing. I don't know, but it's interesting how stories change after books are written. When you're coming at me and you're criticizing me and the criticism is justified, fine. I'll take that. We'll correct that. But when you go make it up stories like a cult, I don't buy it at all. I get annoyed like I'm getting annoyed now. So there's considerable feeling to this day on the part of some in the NYPD who strongly affirm that Berkowitz acted alone. But we need to put feeling to one side and ask, what does the evidence say? Do we have evidence that supports the idea that this was a group effort or that Berkowitz was a lone gunman? How do you want to look at that evidence? I want to start by considering the basic issue of whether Berkowitz acted alone rather than going into the details of what may have been involved. For example, you heard Joseph Pirelli referring to a cult possibly being involved. Whether the group involved was religious in nature is a second order question to whether a group was involved at all. So I want to first look at whether these crimes involved more than one person. And then if they did, we can try to figure out who these people were and what they were up to. It's also undeniable that Berkowitz changed his story from initially confessing to all of the crimes to later saying that others were involved. So I want to look, I want to start by looking at the period before he changed his story. In fact, before he was even arrested to see if there's evidence that would support other people being involved from that period. And what kind of evidence do we find in this period? The first evidence comes from before the police even knew the attacks were connected when they started getting the first eyewitness descriptions. For example, after attack number one, witnesses described the gunman as having dark curly hair and being in his 30s. 
Then, after attack number three, he was described as having long, straight, parted hair, which was dirty blonde. After attack number four, the police realized the attacks were connected, and they released sketches of two different potential suspects. Then, after attack number five, they gave descriptions of two potential attackers. One was a person who was short and looked to be only 16 to 18 years of age and wearing a cap so you couldn't see the hair. The second was someone who was 25 to 30 years old, taller, and had dark hair combed straight back. And after attack number eight, the gunman was described as having long blonde hair. So we've got a bunch of different eyewitness descriptions. Right. Sometimes the person is taller, sometimes shorter, sometimes younger, sometimes older, sometimes dark hair, sometimes light hair, sometimes straight hair, sometimes curly hair. The descriptions are all over the place. And this is reflected in the sketches that the police artists did with the witnesses. They look like very different people. And we'll have a link to where you can view some of the sketches. After the eighth attack, this was the situation. During the past year, police have been working with five sketches, all different somehow. Authorities may now have a break. There were eyewitnesses Sunday morning. I seen a guy coming out of the park. Well, he had uh, light-colored, straggly hair. And as soon as he shot, he put the gun down and he ran. He ran right back where he came out of, right out of the park. So even after this last attack... The hair was different again, this time being described as light-colored and straggly. The police thus issued a new drawing. We are distributing today the new composite drawing of the 44 killer, provided uh, based on descriptions provided by witnesses to the shooting on July 31st. How would you describe the differences between the old sketches and this well, uh, as you can probably see, there are differences, but we also see similarities between the old sketches and this one. Uh, we have uh, people, more people this time who saw the killer than at any time in the, in the past, and uh, I feel that we're making progress. This spokesman tried to put a good face on things by saying that while there were obvious major differences between the sketches, he thought there were also some similarities and the police were making progress but an anonymous member of the task force was more blunt. One detector from the special force summed up the new situation. We know less now than we knew yesterday, he said. The descriptions were just too varied. Did the police have any theories as to why that might be? According to one report at the time, Police now theorize that the man who calls himself the son of Sam may be wearing a wig. Some witnesses say he had curly hair, others straight hair, and the most recent, light hair. And it's true that a serial killer might disguise himself by wearing things like wigs. The Zodiac Killer claimed to have used a disguise, and he is known to have worn a special costume with a hood on one occasion, so it's not impossible. In this case, Berkowitz would have needed at least two wigs, one that was light-colored and another that had straight dark hair. He would also need to somehow cover up his own very tall, bushy, curly hair. But after searching his car and apartment, the police never announced finding any such wigs. And even the use of a wig would not explain the differences in height, age, and build that the eyewitnesses saw. So I don't think the wig theory is particularly promising. What is clear is that Berkowitz did not fit many of the sketches based on eyewitness testimony. 
Here's one of Berkowitz's neighbors commenting on that after the arrest. I may have seen him in the building because a lot of people come in and out, but I don't, I don't think that picture looked anything like him. And as we heard last episode, Mayor Abraham Beam admitted. Well, I was a little surprised that uh, uh, I saw a person of his stature. He seemed to be a very uh, well-built and heavy person. And uh, he didn't resemble the recent set of sketches. So even before Berkowitz was caught and confessed, we have evidence that would suggest more than one person was involved based on eyewitness testimony and as illustrated by the sketches police artists did based on talking to eyewitnesses. And again, we'll have a link to where you can see the sketches for yourself and how different they are. Do we have other evidence from this early period that multiple people might have been involved? We do, in the form of the two letters that were sent, one to Officer Borelli and one to Jimmy Breslin, the columnist for Newsday. First, there's the matter of penmanship. The penmanship in the two letters does not look the same. The Borelli letter is very crudely written, but the Breslin letter looked so professional that the police actually talked to the people at DC Comics to see if they might recognize it as the work of a professional letterer. While penmanship is not conclusive because a person can change his writing style, we do have what appear to be writing coming from two different hands, as handwriting experts say. And that's at least prima facie evidence that we have two different people involved. Is there anything in the content of the letters that would suggest this? Yeah. First, in the Borelli letter, the author says things like, When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. Behind our house, some rest. Papa Sam is old now. He needs some blood to preserve his youth. He has had too many heart attacks. Too many heart attacks. I miss my pretty princess most of all. She's resting in our lady's house. Taken at face value, this involves more than one person. It involves the author who's writing, but it also involves Sam, who gives the orders and is described as a drunken old man who beats his family. The family itself is also referred to, implying that more than just the author is a member of the family. And the family has people buried behind our house, suggesting the family is complicit and aware of this. And one person is described as a pretty princess who is said to be resting in our lady's house. Now, You can question how literal all of this is meant to be and how much of it is misdirection, but on its face, the author of the letter is writing on behalf of a family, a group of people headed by Sam. What about in the Breslin letter? Do we see evidence there? Yes, of course, he again refers to the figure of Sam, but near the end, he says something very interesting. Here are some names to help you along. Forward them to the inspector for use by NCIC, the Duke of Death, the Wicked King Wicker, the 22 Disciples of Hell, John Wheaties, Rapist and Suffocator of Young Girls. The NCIC is the FBI's National Crime Information Center, so the author is suggesting facetiously that these names be run past the FBI to help you along in the Son of Sam investigation. In other words, these names refer to people connected with the case. It seems that people have interpreted them as just different ways the author is referring to himself, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Consider the first two of them, the Duke of Death and the Wicked King Wicker. 
a duke is not the same thing as a king. And so at least on the face of things, the Duke of Death and the Wicked King Wicker would be two different men. Then we come to the third description, the 22 disciples of hell. That is a clear reference to a group of people, not a single individual. And specifically, it's a group of 22 people. That's not the author just referring to himself by a fanciful title. It's definitely a group. And if we have a group involved, then when we come to the last designation, John Wheaties in quotation marks, Wheaties is in quotation marks, he would naturally be read as a distinct individual too. Taken on its face, we've got a group of 22 people who think of themselves as disciples of hell, and this group has leaders or notable members referred to as the Duke of Death, the Wicked King Wicker, and John Wheaties. And this group is claiming responsibility for the crimes. And again, you could argue that this could be taken other ways or it could simply be misdirection. But on its face, the letter is claiming that a group is involved. And this is well before Berkowitz was caught or confessed. Do we have other literary evidence from this period besides the Borelli and Breslin letters? Actually, yes. When the police searched Berkowitz's apartment, they found some written materials, including a third letter written in the style of the original Borelli letter. Yet the police didn't release this letter to the public. And you can kind of guess why when you read what it says. It took Maury Terry several years to get a copy. But according to this letter, This is a warning to all police agencies in the tri-state area. For your information, a satanic cult devil worshippers and practitioners of witchcraft, that has been established for quite some time, has been instructed by their high command, Satan, to begin to systematically kill and slaughter young girls or people of good health and clean blood. They plan to kill at least 100 young Weemon and men, but mostly Weemon, as part of a satanic ritual which involves the shedding of the victim's innocent blood. Warning, the streets shall be run with blood. I, David Berkowitz, have been chosen, chosen since birth, to be one of the executioners for the cult. He who hath eyes, let him see the dead victims. He who hath ears, let him listen to what I say. Okay, so this is explicit on this point. Before his arrest, David Berkowitz writes a letter in which he says there's a satanic cult in the area that believes it's been ordered by the devil to kill people for ritualistic purposes, and Berkowitz himself has been chosen to be one of the executioners for the cult, implying there are other executioners as well. Berkowitz apparently wrote this letter on July 29, 1977, the anniversary, the first anniversary of attack number one. And it was just two days before the eighth and final attack and around two weeks before he was caught. Why would Berkowitz write a note like this in which he named himself? Well, in the first letter, he had already written, To stop me, you must kill me. Attention, all police. Shoot me first. Shoot to kill or else. Mr. Borelli, sir, I don't want to kill any more. No, sir. No more. But I must honor thy father. I want to make love to the world. I love people. I don't belong on earth. Return me to Yahoo's. To the people of Queens, I love you, and I wa want to wish all of you a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and in the next, and for now I say goodbye and good night. So that displays a considerable amount of ambiguity in his feelings about killing. He doesn't want to kill, but feels that he must, perhaps because he's in too deep with this violent cult and he's being ordered to kill, or perhaps just because of his own violent urges. Yet, 
he wants to be killed by the police so that he can be stopped because he doesn't belong on earth in his words. This is a man who wants to be stopped. He explicitly says he wants to be stopped. And you can be stopped as a criminal if you intentionally or semi-intentionally make mistakes that result in getting caught, or if you turn yourself in, or if you commit suicide by cop, which is what he was thinking about in the original Borelli letter. Regardless of which of these Berkowitz was considering on July 29th, and it may have been all of them, a man in that state of mind might well write a note of explanation to leave in his apartment so that it would be found afterwards. That way, people would know he was taking responsibility for his role in the crimes, but also warning the people in the area that there was a broader plot happening. Did Berkowitz say anything else along these lines before he confessed to the crimes in court? Yes. As we heard last episode, on September 19th, 1977, just over a month after his capture, he published a letter in the New York Post in which, among other things, he said things like, This is all a plot. And? When I killed, I really saved many lives. You will understand later. People want my blood, but they don't want to listen to what I have to say. I am doomed now. My fate has already been decided. There are other sons out there. God help the world. Taken in isolation, the statement, there are other sons out there, could be read in more than one way. It could just mean that there are other serial killers out there who are entirely unconnected to this, but it also could mean there are other people involved in the Son of Sam murders. And when you put it in context of the letter found in his apartment, it definitely means the latter. That's also suggested by this is all a plot, and when I killed, I really saved many lives, you will understand later. That suggests he may have been somehow minimizing what the cult was doing by his participation, maybe by convincing them not to carry out the murders even more frequently, or maybe he was saving lives by deliberately getting caught. In this episode, you've been using the word cult to describe the group Berkowitz was supposed to be involved in. You don't normally do that. No, and I wanted to discuss this because I don't like the colloquial use of the word cult. Uh, while it has a technical meaning that refers to any system of religious or spiritual devotion, including all of the good ones, in ordinary speech, it's just an insult word that doesn't have an objective meaning. It just means bad religious group or religious group I don't like. As a result, using this term in discussions normally adds more heat than light and starts arguments about who is or isn't a cult. I thus prefer to use terms that are objectively descriptive, like religious movement, group, sect, but not insults like cult, just like I don't call anybody a fundamentalist unless they call themselves a fundamentalist, because that's also an insult word. But just as there are some people who call themselves fundamentalists, there are people who are happy to describe themselves as being in a cult. They presumably get some kind of transgressive thrill out of this idea. And David Berkowitz was one of them. It's right there in the letter found in his apartment. He says there's a satanic cult in the area, and he's one of its chosen executioners. So I'm willing to make something of an exception when people own the term cult and say that's what they belong to especially in this case where the term is all over the media and the literature. Uh, whatever group may have been involved, it wasn't an established organized religious group. It was apparently a small group of wannabe Satanists and occult practitioners, not a well-defined movement. 
So more formal terms are hard to apply to it. And, you know, like it's not a sect of any larger religion. So we don't seem to have a good colloquial term for this kind of thing. And I'll make an exception this time. And okay, we can call it a cult this time. All right. Supposing there was a cult, why would they quit their activities just because Berkowitz got caught? Because if they continued them, the police would know they were still out there and would pursue them really aggressively. Their best chance of not getting caught was to stop the attacks and let Berkowitz take the fall for them. As we'll hear, they reportedly had leverage over Berkowitz to keep him quiet. Some have speculated that they may have had enough leverage over him to force him to get caught and to be a sacrifice to the police to keep the sect from getting caught as a whole. And even if he didn't stay quiet, he might be dismissed as a madman as long as there were no more killings. But if they kept occurring, the police would be on their trail with a vengeance. What about the fact that the killings were committed with a forty-four caliber gun? Wouldn't that argue that it was just one person? It would be evidence that at least pointed in that direction if ballistics tests showed that it was all the same gun. But that wasn't the case. As Maury Terry reports, Queen's District Attorney John Santucci would phrase it differently. Based on the reports we later obtained from the police department, the bullets were similar but weren't conclusively matched. Maybe the same gun was used, maybe not. In terms of evidence, the reports were inconclusive. And even if it was the same gun, the members of the group could have been passing it around from one person to another as the crimes were being committed to connect them in the minds of the police. This was something that a District Attorney Santucci himself considered. I believe that David Berkowitz did not act alone. And in fact, it has crossed my mind that this 44 caliber pistol that was the weapon used in the shootings uh, that we witnessed uh, was passed around among a number of people. Yet they may have been using different gunmen who didn't look the same to keep the police confused as long as possible. Earlier, we heard Mrs. Moskowitz say that it was physically impossible for Berkowitz to have killed her daughter, Stacy. What does she mean? On the night of the eighth and final attack, which resulted in Stacy's death, a series of events occurred. It started at 2.05 a.m. when a police officer put a ticket on David Berkowitz's Ford Galaxy for parking by a fire hydrant. Berkowitz saw him do this, came over, took the ticket off the windshield, and put it inside the car. This is the ticket that would lead the police back to him and get him caught. The reason it did is that local resident Miss Cecilia Davis saw him take the ticket and put it inside the car. Then she was walking her dog. At 2.33 a.m., Berkowitz came toward her on the sidewalk and glared at her as he passed. She got a very good look at him and later positively identified him as the man who passed her. Two minutes later, at 2.35 a.m., she heard the shots of the eighth attack ring out behind her. The attack was witnessed by Tommy Zino, who saw the gunman crouch, fire, and run into a darkened park. Now, here are the problems. First, as we've heard, Tommy Zeno said that the shooter was not David Berkowitz. No, I didn't think it was David Berkowitz then, and I don't think it's him now. The shooter did not look the same. I seen a guy coming out of the park. Well, he had uh, light-colored, straggly hair, and as soon as he shot... He put the gun down and he ran. He ran right back where he came out of, right out of the park. And here's the kicker. The location where Zeno saw the shooting take place 
was five blocks away from Mrs. Davis. You can't walk five blocks, you know, New York City blocks in two minutes. You'd be lucky to run five city blocks in two minutes in the dark. And nobody reported seeing Berkowitz or the shooter run to the site of the shooting. Investigators on Maury Terry's team tried repeatedly to go from point to point in the needed time, and they couldn't do it. As investigator Michael Zuckerman explains, We ran through this half dozen times, and it doesn't add up. It doesn't seem possible that he could have done this. There had to be someone else who was the shooter while he was acting as the lookout. Witnesses described a yellow Volkswagen that had been cruising the area. Reportedly, someone saw and chased a yellow Volkswagen not far from where Stacy Moskowitz was murdered. David Berkowitz drove a Ford. My gut tells me that there's probably two other people, maybe three other people involved. So that's what Mrs. Moskowitz was referring to when she said it wasn't physically possible for Berkowitz to have shot her daughter. He was seen walking, not running, five blocks away from the site of the shooting just two minutes earlier. If there was a group of people involved, what can we find out about them? In the letter found in his apartment, Berkowitz describes them as a satanic cult. However, this could be a generic description, and they actually could have incorporated several occult themes into their beliefs and practices. To clarify what he meant, he explained the term satanic cult as meaning devil worshippers and practitioners of witchcraft, which suggests a hodgepodge of things. Maury Terry thought that he uncovered evidence that they were called or called themselves the children. He also thought he uncovered connections between them and a group known as the Process or the Process Church of the Final Judgment. And who are they? They were originally a British group that was founded in the 1960s by a couple of ex-Scientologists. They had a bizarre and sinister ideology, and we may talk about them in a future episode. They also had some influence on Charles Manson, who we talked about in episode 54. In fact, Manson wrote for one of their magazines. But they had splintered in 1974 before the Son of Sam killings began. It's possible that some process members had involvement in the group that was responsible for the killings, and their beliefs may have had an influence on what happened, but it would be implausible to simply say this was a process church operation. The Process Church didn't exist as a single organization at this time, and you can't prove causal connections in a guilt-by-former-association manner. What about specific individuals in the group? Do we have any idea who some of them were? We do. You'll recall that the press was reporting that Berkowitz got his orders from some kind of ancient spirit named Sam that spoke to him through a dog. Berkowitz himself said that this was a misunderstanding, that he talked about the barking of the dog and about a spirit named Sam, but he was misunderstood as saying that the spirit was speaking through the dog. The dog was a black Labrador retriever named Harvey, and it was owned by a neighbor of his named Sam Carr, spelled C-A-R-R. So with Sam Carr, there's the name Sam again. Sam had two sons named John and Michael, as well as a sister named Wheat. So you've got John Carr, Michael Carr, and Wheat Carr. But John Carr also had a nickname. One of the people interviewed in the recent Netflix series was Charlie Ott, and he was a boyhood friend of Maury Terry. He had this to say. 
interesting part of the story is that John Carr was in mine and Maury's homeroom in high school. He was a quiet kid, a little strange. He didn't have a lot of friends. We used to call him Wheaties. After his sister, Wheat Carr. The Carr family lives right down the street from Berkowitz in Yonkers. Now, I don't know how much Terry remembered about the people in his homeroom from high school, but he wanted to know more about the dog and the Carr family that owned it, so he went looking for them in the phone book. When he did, he found a listing for their street address, and he saw something particularly noteworthy. Maury went into the phone book looking for the Carr family, and listed was John Wheat Carr. Obviously, it jumped off the page because the John Wheaties reference in the Breslin letter. And that's right. There was a John Wheaties listed in the Jimmy Breslin letter as one of the people connected with the case that the FBI should check out. And John Carr had been known as Wheaties when he was in high school after his sister. And even in 1977, he was listed as John Wheat Carr in the phone book. That would leap out at you. The use of the name in the Breslin letter could be a kind of tantalizing clue that's still not specific enough to let you actually get caught. But even in the Breslin letter... The Wheaties was in quotation marks, suggesting it was a nickname of someone whose actual name was John. If Berkowitz was the author of the Breslin letter, could he be using this name to get John Carr in trouble, even though he had nothing to do with the case? Maybe he had a beef with the Carr family and this was some kind of payback. It's possible and needs to be considered, but given the penmanship differences between the Breslin letter and the ones Berkowitz wrote, it may not have been him writing this one at all. Also, Maury Terry soon got a photograph of John Carr, and he concluded it did look like one of the police artist's sketches, one of a subject that had dark but straight hair. But we also know that John Carr was involved in the occult, and even his sister Wheat was open to the idea that he may have been involved in the crimes. In the 1970s, Wheat Carr worked for the Yonkers Police Department. When the Brooklyn police were trying to trace David Berkowitz's automobile, they called Yonkers, and it so happened that Wheat Carr was the phone operator at the police station. She knew Berkowitz. Her family did. And after things began to unfold, she said the following. We are present here with regard to an investigation involving John Carr. As John's involvement in the occult, I'm not going to deny. There's no way I can deny, and I'd be stupid to deny. And I'll tell you the truth. I don't even care if my brother comes up totally dirty. I just want to resolve. So Wheatcar says her brother John was definitely involved in the occult, and it would be stupid to deny it. And she says she doesn't care if the investigation shows he's totally dirty, meaning involved in the crimes. So she considers that a possibility, knowing her brother. And what happened with John Carr? He went back and forth between New York City and Minot, North Dakota. While in Minot, he made friends and became known to members of law enforcement there, Later, Maury Terry made contact with the police in Minot, and they arranged for him to meet some of John's friends. According to one of Terry's investigators... We spent a lot of time chasing people around and got a statement saying that John Carr and David Berkowitz were associates. 
we heard that David Berkowitz came to Minot on one occasion. Do you remember seeing David Berkowitz? Yeah. Do you remember where you saw him? At Slope House. Was he with John at that time? John was there. Now, you'll recall from last episode that at the bottom of the Jimmy Breslin letter, there was a strange symbol that looked like a large X. In the four quadrants of the X, there were other symbols, a cross, a male symbol, a female symbol, and an S, which might stand for Sam, as it was right under the Son of Sam signature. According to Minot Policeman Lieutenant Terry Gardner, We have reports from people that was close to John that they have seen him write the Son of Sam Uh, What do you want to call it? Logo? It's a good word for it. On the telephone book, numerous times prior to David Berkowitz being arrested. He drew it in the back of a Minot telephone directory. You see see the the male sign up in the top part here? The female part was at one part. It's supposed to be a snake. This is supposed to be like an S. According to Taylor, John Carr was drawing the symbol four months before it was ever published in the newspaper. As far as I know, we don't have any phone books containing this symbol, so we can't verify what John Carr was drawing in them. But at least the police received reports that John was making this symbol months before the Jimmy Breslin letter came out. However that may be, in addition to his sister, other people who knew John confirmed his involvement in occult activities. According to Lieutenant Gardner in Minot, These people said that John was the leader of the group, that John performed rituals numerous times. We know of one case where John killed a German Shepherd dog. Right back out here behind uh, the building, there used to be two houses out here, and they were drinking the blood. So that would suggest that John Wheaties' car was a prominent individual in the group. And that could make sense because he was a literal son of Sam, his father being Sam Carr. And that could explain why the name John Wheaties was figured in the Breslin letter alongside the Duke of Death, the Wicked King Wicker, and the 22 Disciples of Hell. Do we know anything about what was happening with Carr after Berkowitz was caught? We have an account from early 1978 while Berkowitz was in jail and awaiting trial. According to a mental health counselor in Minot named Lee Slater, I met John Carr for the first time in February of 1978. He came into the clinic as an unreferred person walking in off the street, as I understand it. But he was just agitated and was upset. I asked him to sit down. He sat down. There was some, he'd get up and pace a little bit, sit back down again. And then it, it's, it's like, what's going on here? And he said, I think somebody's trying to kill me. Or I think somebody's going to try and hurt me. And he talked about that he thought he might be in, in trouble with the law back in New York. That's when he said that he had a connection with David Berkowitz, the son of Sam Killer and um, that he had information that he thought the police would be very interested in. And things took a real right turn from there. He talked about participation in some sort of um, witchcraft. We'd heard about that activity in the Minot area. They had found satanic symbols being painted on trees and that kind of stuff. Whether that was true or not, I don't know. 
Based on what we've heard thus far, John may have been a prominent person in the group, but he may not have been the only leader. There would still be the Duke of Death and the Wicked King Wicker who were mentioned above him in the Breslin letter. And with Carr out in Minot telling counselors he had information about the Son of Sam killings the police would be very interested in, even though Berkowitz was already in custody, other members of the group could have decided that John needed to be silenced, so he could have had reason to fear for his life. What ended up happening? John Carr had previously served in the Air Force, and he went to the Minot Air Force Base in 1974 before the killing started. In 1978, he went back to the base, only he didn't have permission to. He was trespassing. Officer Glenn Geetson picks up the story. I'm a retired law enforcement officer from North Dakota. I worked in Ward County Sheriff's Office. If you could describe the events of that night... A man was trespassing in base housing. I went to the house, and uh, as I approached, I introduced myself as Glenn Geetson from the sheriff's office. Bam! The shot went off inside, and I went in right away. His girlfriend was there, and she took me to the bedroom. He was slumped over. Uh, the gun was slid away. He was identified then as John Carr from New York. Everybody in the country knew about the Son of Sam cases, and I found out that this John Carr was the son of Sam Carr, and right away, I mean, things started clicking to me. There's an issue here. Why is he here? You know, you know what is he doing here? Why would he kill himself rather than be arrested? So John Carr apparently killed himself. However, an article in the New York Times indicates that police in Minot started looking into whether it may have been a murder. After all, his girlfriend was in the house and she could have silenced him. Or maybe someone else was in the house, too. Or maybe Carr thought it was the cult pretending to be the police at the door and took his life. Or maybe he thought the local police were corrupted and in league with the cult. Or maybe he was just so fearful at this point he couldn't stand it and decided to end his life. However you want to read it, John Wheaties Carr died in a really mysterious way. If he was a literal son of Sam, what do we know about Sam Carr himself? According to former investigator Kevin Murphy, no relation to the voice of Tom Servo. We heard stories that Sam was very miserable. Uh, you know, nobody had a nice word for him that I saw. And he was a hard disciplinarian. I heard he really abused the boys. He would beat them. He would lock them in the attic sometimes as punishment. And that fits with the Borelli letter, which said, I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic, too. Papa Sam is old now. He has had too many heart attacks. Too many heart attacks. Ugh, me hoot, it hurts, sonny boy. The letter also said that Sam ordered the murders, but that's not likely literally true. No evidence has emerged that Sam Carr was involved in the murders or his son's occult activities. However, if he abused his sons this way, it could have fostered their psychopathic tendencies and they may have incorporated what they suffered into the mythology of the group they were part of. 
What about the other literal son of Sam, Michael Carr? It so happens he had light-colored curly hair and looked very much like one of the police artist sketches of the gunman based on what the eyewitnesses said. He also died under mysterious circumstances in 1979, the year after his brother. Charlie Ott reports, Michael Carr was driving a car on the West Side Highway in New York and was killed in a car accident that was questionable. There were tire marks and stuff from another vehicle, which was an indication that somebody ran him off the road. And another of Terry's associates notes, He ran this car at high speeds into a highline pole and killed himself. You don't accidentally run your car into a highline pole at 90-some miles an hour. I mean, you don't, you know, that things just don't happen. You got John Carr, Mike Carr, all suspects dying accidentally. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's too much of a coincidence. Sometimes you got to open your eyes where wide and see the whole picture. So it may well be that someone ran Michael Carr off the road and killed him. And it may be that the deaths of both of the literal Sons of Sam, which occurred within two years of the crimes, were connected with them. So how do you want to proceed from here? We've seen enough evidence both from before Berkowitz was caught and evidence that was discovered afterwards and did not come from Berkowitz that I think the conspiracy theory of the crimes must be taken seriously. We've done all this without relying on any claims Berkowitz made in interviews with Maury Terry. So I think it would be useful at this point to go back and hear what he actually did tell Terry in his own words. All right, first, let's talk about a letter that Berkowitz exchanged with Terry long before he interviewed him. It was sent in early 1980, less than two years after he'd been sentenced and when Terry was beginning his investigation. In it, Berkowitz wrote, For my views of your new investigation, I have mixed feelings. I can also say that I am guilty of these crimes. You see, Maury, even if I could show you that I didn't do it all, I'd still be guilty of conspiracy in some of the cases. I'd even be guilty of second-degree murder in others. So regardless, I would still have a long prison term, but this doesn't bother me. Next, I could safely tell you that one member, John Carr, is deceased, so this would leave me with only myself to share the guilt or proof of it. Besides, many others have vanished, scattered about all over the USA for all I know. So this leaves both you and me alone once the dust clears. Furthermore, I am not a stool pigeon, and I cannot, no matter how heinous the crime, testify against another individual. Even if a given individual has wronged me, still, I must keep silent because this is the code. This is our code, the inmates of Attica. I know this seems like something out of a gangster movie, but this place is my home now, and I will live by the rules and by the oath. First, notice how coherent Berkowitz is in this. It's not like any of the raving Son of Sam letters, which suggests that the madness in them was an act, at least to a significant degree. In another letter to Terry, Berkowitz admits that there was an attempt to make him appear insane when really he was sane all along. In this letter, Berkowitz admits that there was a group effort, but he still takes responsibility for his part in it. He implicitly acknowledges that he did some of the shootings, and he says that in other cases he would be guilty of second-degree murder, and in other cases he would be guilty of conspiracy, which means he cooperated with other people who were planning murder. He also acknowledges that John Carr was part of the group that was doing this, and he says that others vanished and scattered across the U.S. as far as he knows. 
Finally, he says he will not testify against the others, at least partly because he's now in Attica, a place for dangerous criminals, so he must now live with dangerous criminals and must abide by their code. And remember, another inmate in Attica did try to take Berkowitz's life in 1979 before this letter was sent by slashing his throat and, even though he survived, leaving him with a huge permanent lifelong scar. So all of that sounds quite believable in light of what we've been able to find with supporting evidence. What about what Berkowitz told Terry in the videotaped interviews? Terry was criticized for being too aggressive in the 1997 interview, and Berkowitz was clearly reluctant during that one. But let's listen to material from an earlier interview they did in 1993, and you'll note how Berkowitz isn't as reluctant. He doesn't respond to Terry with just brief statements, but volunteers details on his own. Here, Berkowitz talks about what it was like when he got out of the Army and moved back to New York. One of the places they refer to is Untermeyer Park, an area in Yonkers where young people would hang out and that has evidence of weird rituals being performed there. But notice how Berkowitz is very forthcoming here, volunteering details without being asked. Here he describes how he became involved in the group. When I had gotten out of the service, it was a big time of transition for me. I was very vulnerable. I was very lonely, empty, and... You know, I had no sense of direction. Just wasn't getting anything out of life. I had met some people. They were at a party nearby, and we met, and um, we spoke for a while. Some of the people seemed to be just hanging out, you know, like me, and just looking for companionship. That was basically it, you know. Did there come a point in time when it did get more serious? Was that over in Yonkers, like up at Untermeyer Park? Right, right, right. We had a spot where there was like a circle with rocks and everybody can sit on a rock and, and so forth and rap out there out in the middle of nowhere. You could actually feel like a force out there, a presence out there in the, in the darkness. We began to hear more and more conversations about witchcraft, about black magic. We were really having little religious services almost. And these rituals started becoming more intense. I did begin to witness some animal sacrifices. I was repulsed in one way, but I was fascinated in another. You know, this was something that was different. Nobody else was doing this except our small little circle of people. They made it feel special or something. Yeah, yeah, we felt special. Ultimately, David would be asked to commit to the group. There came a time uh, when you were formally initiated into this group. I took a, an oath and a blood, made a little blood pact that I would serve the devil. And uh, Did you have to turn over anything to the leaders of this uh, of the yeah. group at that point? Yeah, I had to give pictures of uh, my family. I was told that we're all brothers and sisters now. If you betray this group, we're gonna, you have to understand we're going to get your family. You're going to get them, you know, because Satan won't tolerate anyone trading, being a turncoat. There's no Judas Iscariot here. You know what happened to Judas, don't you? So that would explain part of why David is reluctant to name names about living people from the group, because he still had family that was, out, that was alive, notably his father, who was living in Florida. 
And from a twisted perspective, it's understandable the group would want information they could use against David because their rituals were crossing into criminal territory. Did there come a time when this, uh, this group, when the crimes that they were committing, for, you know, went beyond animal sacrifice, yeah, were yeah, there arsons yeah. or something? Yeah, yes, there were definitely what a, lot, that a lot of arsons. These demons wanted fire. And that fits with the diary of arson incidents that police found in David's apartment. Also note that we have a criminal progression occurring here, like we heard about in episode 38 on how we caught the Golden State Killer. Violent criminals typically don't start by committing their biggest crimes right out of the gate. They tend to start small and work their way up to bigger and bigger crimes. Thus, Joseph D'Angelo started as the Visalia ransacker, just going into people's houses and messing them up. Then he became the East Area Rapist and finally the Golden State Killer. In the same way, David and his group were starting with smaller crimes that don't have humans as victims, like animal sacrifices. Then they graduated to crimes that do affect people, like arson. And then they graduated to actually killing people. So all this had been going on. It seemed like it was like a snowball going down a hill in yeah. a sense, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. I never believed beyond the wildest imagination, my wildest imagination, that one day people, innocent people, were going to die. The Son of Sam shootings, where did that just happen, or did this, or were these, or, or did they just want more violence, and they were, and they planned that they were going to do this? It's something even so horrible to contemplate, but... Is that how they viewed these shootings, or at least most of these shootings, as like the ultimate sacrifice? Is that sort of the idea? Yeah. And according to Berkowitz, it was a group effort. There were a series of eight attacks known yeah. as the Son of Sam killings. Yeah. Did you do all of them? Uh, I was at all of them. I was at, uh, more or less at all of them, scouting the areas and, and reporting back on likely targets and things. And uh, I did not pull the trigger at every single one of them. And uh, I believe the police do know that. I think that they were able to realize that after time, although it's not important, I mean, because I did do some of the crimes. I did take some lives, and I'm, I'm very sorry for that. And I look back and I say, my God, you know, how did this all come about? How did this all begin? And I, I just don't know anymore. I don't know. So he was involved in all of the attacks, but sometimes he was playing a support role, such as a scout or a lookout. In some cases, once his job was done, he left before the actual shooting took place, so he didn't witness them all. You mean before the shooting occurred? Right. You would have been out of the neighborhood before the yeah, shooting some occurred? Yeah, sure. I see. So there were some instances you didn't even see them right, happen. Right, right. But there were always several people involved, a small team involved in each attack. At these crime scenes, David, were there always extra people, accomplices on the scene, assisting the, the shooter in one way or another? Yes. What roles would those people play? Uh, sometimes to be prepared to drive away, others to take, take a gun if need be, or just to scout the area and so forth. And uh, that was basically it. So you had scouts looking for targets, people to take the gun away from the shooter so that if he got caught, he wouldn't have the gun on him, getaway drivers, and so forth. Terry also walked Berkowitz through the eight attacks to ask about the ones where he was the gunman. We'll play this sequence for you, but here Berkowitz is particularly ashamed of what happens, and his responses are barely audible. 
In one case, he just nods his head to acknowledge that, yes, he was the gunman in this attack. So we'll break up the audio to allow me to tell you more clearly what he is acknowledging. You may not think that it's all that relevant as to what you did or what you didn't do, but I can guarantee you that to the public and the families and all, it's very important, yeah. the survivors, the victims. Well, from what I could remember, so much of it, I, I really want to forget. I don't even dwell on it anymore. Uh, it's such a nightmare to me were, that to even... Uh, but there were eight attacks. You, you just said you didn't do all of them. Yeah. Um, Donna Laurie in the Bronx. Was that you? Yeah. It's hard to hear, but Berkowitz just acknowledged he was the shooter for attack number one. He then denies being the shooter for attacks two through five before acknowledging that he was the shooter for attack number six. Uh, Carl De Niro, Rosemary Keenan in Queens. No. That wasn't you. Joanne Lamino, Donna DeMassey in Queens. No. Christine Freund in Queens. No. Virginia Voscaricin in Queens. No. no. You didn't do any of those in Queens. No, I was there. I was in that area. Okay, back to the Bronx. We had the shootings of uh, Valentina Suriani and Alex Esau. Was that you? Here, he nodded his head to acknowledge that he was the gunman in attack number six. Then he denies being the shooter for attacks seven and eight. And we go back out to Queens by the Elephus Disco out in Bayside. Judy Placido, Sal Lupo, was that you? No. And finally, probably uh, the, one of the most infamous shootings in the history of the United States, the murder of Stacey Moskowitz, the blinding of Robert Violante in Brooklyn. Was that you? All told, Berkowitz acknowledged being the gunman in attacks one and six and admitted playing a support role in the other six attacks. So he was still involved, even though he didn't pull the trigger. He also acknowledged that the cars were involved and that John Wheaty's car was the trigger man in attack number three. Is it true that John and Michael Carr were part of this group? Yes, yes they were. The evidence I had uncovered said that, uh, determined that John Carr shot Joanne Lamino and Donna DeMassey in Queens. If I believe correctly, yes. And he indicates that Michael Carr was a trigger man and says he believes it was for attack number seven. His memory may be blurry because that may have been one of the occasions where he was on the scene as a scout or something, but then left early and didn't see the shooting itself. Michael Carr. Did Michael Carr pull the trigger? Yeah, he did. I believe at one time, yes. To recall which one? I think it was at that disco in Queens. Berkowitz would not name, but did discuss the gunman in attack number four. We had the, the shooting of Christine Freund. Did they bring somebody in from out of town to do that? Yeah. yeah. Was that person from California or elsewhere? Mm, I think he was... Uh, from California. I think he was out in Dakotas for a while, from what I understand. And these people are pretty guarded about their, their past and their private lives and everything. They're not, we don't, we don't, uh, some don't even use their uh, real names. The idea of an interstate network and bringing people in from outside of town is consistent with the evidence that was uncovered about John Carr also conducting rituals in North Dakota, suggesting that there was a branch of the group there. 
and of members going back and forth between these locations, as people in Minot said John Carr and David Berkowitz did. Finally, Berkowitz states that there were some women who served as gunmen. He's definite about attack number two being done by a woman, and he's hesitant to say it, but eventually says that attack number five was also done by a woman. Were any of the 44 shootings done by females? Uh, yes. Would that have been one shooting or two? Uh, one I know of, possibly two. Would that have been the Virginia Voskerichian shooting and or the Carl De Niro shooting? Uh, I know that uh, Carl's uh, was a definitely a, a woman. And uh, the other one I'm not quite sure about. Berkowitz was being evasive about the killing of Virginia Voskerichian who was shot on a Queen Street while walking home from school. I persisted, asking about a suspect spotted at the scene. That would have been the person with the ski cap, watch cap on, sweater? Yeah. Would that have been a woman? Yeah. Now, would that woman have been from New York or elsewhere? Uh, I believe uh, from, from elsewhere. I'm not exactly sure. You mean you didn't know the woman that well? Well, meaning let's not talk about it. Yeah. Could you describe what role you played? Well, I just, uh, like some of the others, just to, just to walk around and uh, be a lookout and everything. And, uh... It's clear that Berkowitz doesn't want to talk about this woman, which is a signal that he thinks he or his family could get in trouble if he did. So he's evasive and tries to shut down the discussion about this incident rather quickly. However, what he does say fits with what is known about attack number five. When it happened, the police released descriptions of two people they wanted to talk to. One was shorter than the other, clean-shaven, and wore a cap that covered the hair and appeared to be 16 to 18 years of age. The other was taller, had dark hair combed back, and appeared to be 25 to 30. The first one, the younger one, was the shooter. And it's quite possible that a woman in her 20s with her hair covered could be mistaken for a 16 to 18 year old man. The second person with the dark hair could have been Berkowitz, who was 24 at the time. If you put all those together, it sounds like Berkowitz said at least something about almost all of the gunmen in the eight attacks. Correct. He said that the gunman in attack number one was himself, David Berkowitz. The gunman in attack number two was an unknown woman. The gunman in attack number three was John Carr. The gunman in attack number four was an unknown man from out of town. The gunman in attack five was an unknown woman from out of town. The gunman in attack six was himself again, David Berkowitz. The gunman in attack seven was Michael Carr. The only one he didn't address on camera in 1993 was attack number eight. However, as Maury Terry writes in his book, Berkowitz told him off camera that the gunman in attack number eight was a friend of John Carr from North Dakota. Terry also has more details about who was present at each attack and what they were doing, which are gathered in the epilogue of his book. He indicates that these were details Berkowitz didn't want to state on camera, but was willing to tell him after the interview was over without the camera going. Did the 1993 interview with Berkowitz shed any light on any other questions? 
It did. For example, it confirmed that the letters weren't the product of a single person. Berkowitz says that there was input from the group. Would I be correct in saying that those letters were a group effort rather than the work of one individual? Oh, yeah. Uh, yes, that was a group thing. Again, part of the role, the goal, was to create an atmosphere of terror. You know, as a as into Satanism, we felt that that you know, it was part of the thing. He also discussed why he was willing to take the fall for the group. Why did you take the rap for all of these people? At this time, I had really sold myself out to our little group, and I, I was like a gung-ho soldier for them, and so I just was sticking loyal, you know, said, well, you know, I'm going to hang, stand my ground. And, and for many years, for many years, I just kind of laid the path to myself. I had done that purposely. I also felt very guilty, too. I felt like, well, what the hell, you know? I, uh, I did shed innocent blood. I hurt people that didn't deserve to be hurt. And so what the hell if I take the rap for two or, or ten? So between being initially convinced and later feeling guilty, along with fearing for himself and his family, it would be understandable why David Berkowitz was willing initially to take the fall and even today to remain guarded about how many details he reveals. What about Sam? Did the interview shed light on who Sam was supposed to be? It did, and here Berkowitz tries to clear up the story about the dog, indicating that the dog's barking was part of the cover story, but that it was misunderstood by the psychologist he talked to who thought he was saying that the dog actually spoke. The dog was not Sam. The figure of Sam actually combined two figures. One was Sam Carr, the abusive father of John and Michael Carr, and the other was a demon supposedly named Sam Hain who Berkowitz described as the greatest of the druid demons, or deities being interpreted as a demon. Now, he's actually not correct about that, but first, let's listen to what he had to say. About the, uh, the dog spoke and all of that. Yeah. Was that part of the cover story? Yes, yes it was. Yeah. But, you know, the, sadly, the... The psychiatrists or the psychologists, they, they're so blind, you know, I tried to explain to them what was happening, but they couldn't gra grasp it, who Sam really was. And I hate to talk about this because people have made a joke about this for so very long, you know, the talking dog and well, everything, and Sam, but basically, I had given them the whole sh thing in a nutshell, and they never quite caught on that the highest ranking demon of the Druids is Sam Hain, S-A-M-H-A-I-N, that's how you right. Sam Hain, and these people who died, the victims, sadly, were for him. So this worked two ways. You had Sam Hain, um, and you also had Sam Carr and his sons. Yeah, right, right, right. So would I be correct that the term son of Sam, or actually sons of Sam, worked on a couple of levels? Is that true? Yes, that's true, yeah, yeah. What are the mistakes in what Berkowitz says here? There are a couple of errors. First, the word is not pronounced Sam Hain. It's pronounced Sawain. However, you wouldn't know that from the way it's spelled because it's spelled S-A-M-H-A-I-N. And back in the 1970s, you were working largely from books and you couldn't just go on YouTube and find a lecture with a scholar discussing it and hearing how it's actually pronounced. So, 
Based on its spelling, it's not surprising that Berkowitz and his group would think it was pronounced Samhain. Incidentally, in more recent interviews, Berkowitz uses the correct pronunciation, Sawain, and explains that they pronounced it Samhain back then. What's the second mistake? Samhain is not a, or Samhain, is not a deity or a demon. It's a Gaelic end-of-harvest festival that occurs halfway between the autumnal equinox and the winter solstice. It's well-known as a festival, and I've looked it up in scholarly works and can't find any references to it being a demon or a deity, much less the highest-ranking druid one. That appears to be an eccentric idea that Berkowitz and his group got into their heads, presumably because they thought the name Samhain sounded exotic and pagan, so it it must be a demon, the highest druid one. They then took the name Sam from Samhain and combined it with details of the behavior of Sam Carr to form the figure described in the letters. What would you say to people who think Berkowitz is just lying about all of this? They could be right. That's not impossible, but I don't think he is. First, whatever you think of the later interview with Maury Terry, it's clear in the 1993 interview that he's not being browbeaten and grudgingly confirming everything to get the interview over. Even though he's keeping the identities of living people secret, he's volunteering a lot of other details. That means he's not just going along with whatever Terry says. Second, he's maintained the same account in other later interviews. We won't document this in detail, but here's part of a later interview with Larry King. In listening to the full interview, I kept wanting to yell at Larry King because he keeps interrupting Berkowitz with rapid-fire questions, and I wanted to say, let him finish what he was saying. <laughs> Common complaint about Larry King. <laughs> yeah. However, notice that even though Berkowitz is rattled by the fact Larry King won't let him finish half his sentences, he's maintaining the same story. When you say mistake, what mistake did you make Uh, before the killing? Getting involved in things. I was lonely. I was uh, looking for companionship. I wanted to. I just I got out of the service. I, I did three years in the Army. I was honor, honorably discharged, and I wanted to start a life. I enrolled in community college. And Living got, where? In the Bronx. I got my own apartment. I had saved up some money from when I was in the service, and I just wanted to start my life, uh, you know, coming out. And friends had moved away, and I didn't know anyone. And, How old were you? Uh, uh, 21 at the time. And then you got mixed up with some people? Yeah, I got uh, involved, and, and uh, it was a, a very long process, and uh, I look back with regret. And, uh, uh, to, to a young person who might be watching, who might be affected by, is this kind of a cultish group? or? I guess, you, I guess what, you can say what you, that. What, did, what mistake did you make? What, what didn't you see that you should have seen? Uh, danger. Uh, was this a group of people? Yeah. I was uh, adventurous. I was just uh, an arrogant person. I was lonely. I just... Uh, Did you always act alone? Well, not not, real, not fully like that. Were other people caught? No. They're still out there? Uh, most have passed on. And, uh, but they were involved in killing as well? They, they got away with it? Well, no, they haven't got away with it, and they won't. I... I you think they're in hell? Uh... Some have lost their lives. 
And this interview is not unique. If you go to David Berkowitz's ministry website, they have links to lots of other video interviews where he says the same thing. He doesn't go into a lot of detail because he's ashamed, but he's telling a consistent story. Third, he's also not excusing himself. He's not trying to get himself off the hook for these crimes. He's saying, yes, there were other people involved, but in his words, that doesn't matter because he's guilty too. He was the trigger man in two cases and was complicit in the other six. He also isn't trying to get out of jail. He's repeatedly stated he's accepted his punishment. He knows he should be in jail for the rest of his life. And he's asked for his parole hearings to be canceled and hasn't attended some of them. So if he's not trying to get out of jail and he's not trying to get himself morally off the hook, what motive does he have to lie about this? And finally, we've been able to find evidence for the core of the story completely apart from these interviews. So I think the core of this, what he's saying is likely true. Okay, so what can we say about the Son of Sam killings from the faith perspective? Apart from the fact that arson and killing and devil worship are bad things, what about the idea David has proposed in some interviews that he was possessed at the time of the crimes? That could be the case, but there are several cautions here. First, David is an evangelical Christian, and evangelicals don't have a developed demonology and set of distinctions when it comes to demonic influence and the different forms it can take and how you diagnose them. For example, they don't clearly distinguish between full-blown possession and other forms of demonic influence. Also, evangelicals don't, and, and obviously I'm speaking in general terms here, obviously some evangelicals may have more refined systems of classification for all this, but broadly speaking, evangelicals don't have a clearly developed set of criteria for determining degrees of demonic influence or disentangling it from mental illness and social or other factors. The Catholic tradition does have these things, but even in the Catholic Church, ordinary lay people are notoriously bad at diagnosing cases of possession. That's why you always want to bring in a qualified exorcist who will also enlist a qualified mental health professional to diagnose what's going on. For an ordinary layman in any tradition, whether evangelical, Catholic, or anything else, it's going to be harder to accurately diagnose possession, and it will be especially hard to self-diagnose it. It will be all too easy to look back on a former stage of life and say, I was doing horrible things, I had horrible impulses, and I was worshiping demons, therefore I must have been possessed. In a way, that's what would let a person get off the hook morally for his actions, saying it wasn't really me doing those things, I was possessed. What do you think of the idea that he was possessed? I don't see evidence here of a full-blown possession. I haven't found David reporting having any preternatural abilities that would go beyond the ordinary back then, like superhuman strength or preternatural knowledge of things he shouldn't know about. I haven't found him reporting a voice that was not his own speaking through him. I haven't found him saying he was not physically in control of his body and that something else had taken control. So I don't see clear evidence of of a full possession. So what about demonic influence that doesn't amount to full possession? Do you dismiss that? No, because he actually was invoking demons and or beings he thought to be demons. And he did have a warped set of emotional commitments that led him to do horrific things. 
I can't prove this because David also admits having significant emotional problems going back to childhood, and those certainly played a role. But because this was an instance, I mean, you know, I don't automatically attribute things to demons unless they're being specifically invoked. And this is one of those cases. Demons were being explicitly invoked, and I certainly can't rule out demonic influence playing a role here. But to properly document and prove that, we need to be able to go back and investigate the historical situation in a way that we can't. How sincere do you think David's Christian conversion is? I always start with a question mark in my head about jailhouse conversions. I don't assume they're false, but I always have at least a question mark because there are people who have insincere conversions in jail. So I have that question mark, but then I look for evidence that would point one way or the other in terms of sincerity. Insincere people don't show a lot of intellectual engagement with their professed faith. They don't spend a lot of time studying the Bible. They can't quote scripture easily beyond maybe just a few passages that, you know, are central to documenting their claim, but they can't, they don't have a broad knowledge of scripture and they can't articulate complex theological ideas well. But if they can do such things, then that's another story. When I read former Manson family member Charles Tex Watson's book, I was impressed at how intellectually engaged he was with theological concepts. And even though he's an evangelical and evangelicals don't usually study the church fathers, he was able to cite passages from the church fathers to support theological arguments he was making. So I think Charles Watson is sincere in his conversion. And I think the same thing about David Berkowitz. I'd have to play you a whole bunch of audio to document that well, and we don't have time for that, but we will have a link to his ministry website where you can watch lots of videos of him discussing his spiritual life. That way, you can make up your own mind. You can hear his voice, see his body language, and observe the way he engages intellectually with his professed faith. People also may want to follow up by watching the Netflix documentary Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness. Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, it's a good documentary. It's not primarily about David Berkowitz. It's primarily about Maury Terry and how he became obsessed with the case. And I think that's a fair assessment. He was obsessed with it. The documentary does a good job challenging some of Terry's theories about the case, which is good. I wish it would challenge a few more of them because I would. Terry fell victim to a kind of parallelomania where he was seeing parallels and connections between all kinds of things where the evidence was more tenuous than what he seemed to think. For example, he thought that the Son of Sam logo was based on a design by the 19th century French occultist Eliphas Levy. But I don't see that at all. The designs, when you look at them, are very different. He also thought that if you hold the Eliphas Levy design up to a mirror, you can see Sam Carr written on it backwards. But that's just wrong. What it actually says if you hold it up to a mirror is Karasama, not Sam Carr. And how would Sam Carr's name end up backwards on a 19th century talisman anyway? We have no evidence that Sam Carr, the father of John and Michael Carr, had any occult involvement, much less that his parents would name him after something you kind of, sort of, but really don't see in a mirror if you hold up a 19th century talisman to it. I mean, that's just crazy talk. So is Terry's observation that the Levy talisman has the word 
Berkiel written along its edge, and that Berkiel reminds him of Berkowitz, as if David Berkowitz's family name is somehow connected to a French talisman. I mean, again, it's just crazy talk. So by all means, I mean, if you want to watch the documentary, do. It's got lots of good stuff in it, but do cross-examine the ideas presented in it, even when the filmmakers don't. If it's true that there was a group responsible for the Son of Sam killings, what do you think its status is today? Is it something we have to worry about? Not really. Berkowitz has acknowledged that many of its members have died, which you would expect anyway, since the attacks were 44 years ago. They were leading dangerous, violent and drug fueled lives, and they were already in their 20s and 30s. So they were living fast and likely dying young, just like John and Michael Carr. If they kept up their criminal activity, others likely ended up behind bars and the group apparently stopped its activities after the Son of Sam killings to keep from getting caught. And if they haven't been heard from in 44 years, they probably won't be heard from again. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the Son of Sam killings? I think that David Berkowitz was complicit in the Son of Sam attacks. I think he definitely committed at least two of them. I also think that the idea of a group was involved is credible and should not be dismissed out of hand. I think the preponderance of evidence supports that claim. So I think there was a group. I think Maury Terry got the core of the story right. But I also think he went down rabbit trails and saw false connections between things. I think David Berkowitz appears to be a sincere Christian today. And I think that we should pray for everyone involved in this, the victims, their families, the killers, and everyone who was touched by this series of horrific events. We should pray even for those who are already dead. As Pope Benedict has said, it is never too late to pray. God is outside of time, and he can help people whenever in history they need that help. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener about this topic? We'll have a link to Maury Terry's book, The Ultimate Evil, also the Netflix documentary Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness, articles on David Berkowitz, Son of Sam Laws, David Berkowitz's official website, a page with the police sketches so you can see all the how the different eyewitnesses thought the gunman looked, a Lost Tapes video of 1970 news coverage of the story, a UPI story on Berkowitz's guilty pleas, in his own words, video interviews of David Berkowitz, the text of a CBN interview, information on the history of New York City in the 1970s. We'll have links to Inside Edition interviews with David Berkowitz from 93 and 99, as well as a Larry King interview from 99. Also, information on the Process Church of the Final Judgment, the New York Times article on John Carr, and information on the Celtic holiday, Samhain. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com. A-A-R-O-N-V.com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church. By Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by best-selling Christian author Jacqueline Brown. Get a free audio copy of her award-winning novel, The Light. Who do you become when the world falls away? Get the book at sqpn.com slash the Light, appropriate for mature teens and adults. Learn more at Jacqueline-Brown.com.
So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? This time we have a theme of things falling down. <laughs> First of all, uh, it is widely held in the scientific community that an asteroid fell down and killed all the dinosaurs striking near the Yucatan Peninsula. Well, if that happened, and I think it did, I think it was at least part of what killed the dinosaurs. But if it happened, you would expect there to be an enormous tsunami as a result. And so scientists went looking for evidence of an enormous tsunami having happened. And they found it. They found gigantic ripples in the soil buried underground today. And when they ran those, when they ran the direction of the water flow backwards to find out where, where these ripples would have started, it zeroed in on the crater uh, at the Yucatan. So we apparently have gigantic underground dino-killing tsunami ripples, <laughs> and you can read about that. Now, with that asteroid falling down, you might want a way to stop other asteroids from falling down. And that's nice because the Air Force has now released a document talking about a force field defense system that they hope to have operational by around 2060. Now, the purpose of this is not asteroid deflection, but things like Chinese missile deflection. And it's not actually a force field in the sense you would imagine where there's like a solid impenetrable barrier, although that kind of force field is possible. But that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about a system that of targeting systems that is so precise, it could basically provide complete coverage of an area from incoming missile attacks and perhaps incoming asteroid attacks. So hopefully it could protect us from mass drivers as well. But you can read about that. And then lastly, in terms of things falling down, another much less threatening things that thing that falls down is sports balls. <laughs> and recently there was a big sports ball in event over in Tokyo. I think it was called the Olympics or something like that. And <laughs> during one of the basketball games during the intermission, they demoed what was described by the New York Post as a horrifying robot with the headline horrifying robot plays basketball at Olympics. And it's an impressive robot. It, it is. It's not very fast, but it's very accurate. And so if they get a robot that is both fast and accurate in sinking dunks, it will be even more horrifying. The Japanese so, do love their humanoid robots, don't they? <laughs> in, in some cases, yes. Also, as they say on Instapundit, Skynet smiles. <laughs> I, for one, welcome our new basketball playing robot overlords. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Jimmy, for that. So we want to hear from you, our listener. What are your theories about the Son of Sam killings? What do you think of the uh, the theories that Jimmy has come up with and the different ideas that have developed as a result of that? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to be talking about a man called Paul Amadeus Dinoch. He was a European gentleman, and he fell into a coma and appeared to experience the 40th century. Hmm, interesting. Look forward to that. 
Folks, remember to follow Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or at our YouTube channel where you should hit the bell to get notifications. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>